Hello, my name is Nicole. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 1:31. God saw everything he made. It was supremely good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Paula. The New Testament reading is found in James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above. These gifts come down from the Father, the creator of the heavenly lights, in whose character there is no change. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Martha. Thank you if you are able to stand for the reading of the gospel. It is found in John 3, 3 through 5. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. But how can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. The Gospel of the Lord. Amen. You may remain standing as we pray. Almighty God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word to us today. We ask that as we open up the scriptures that you would speak to us, that your voice would be heard in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would call us, that you would change us, challenge us, conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen, Amen, Amen. You may be seated. Now, some of you during that prayer had your eyes open. I could tell because I had my eyes open. And you were distracted because you're like, why does Glenn have, is that chocolate cake? That is chocolate cake. Why does Glenn have chocolate cake on the stage? And can we have some? Now, if you were to try this chocolate cake, well, let's say we had Paul and Mary from the Great British Bake Off in the house this morning. Even better. And let's say Paul and Mary took a little piece of this and they said, "Mm, yes, it's a little bit dry, but there's not quite sugar, enough sugar. And maybe among us this morning, there are even some food scientists. Don't raise your hand if you actually are. But let's say you're a food scientist. There's a food scientist in the house and you'd analyze this cake and you put some whatever chemical droppers on it and take it under the microscope. You could probably tell us all the ingredients. You might be able to tell us the chemical makeup of of all the ingredients of this cake. You might even be able to say that this was a cake that came from a Betty Crocker box. You might know what temperature it was baked at. You might be able to tell me all kinds of things, but what you can't tell me is who made this cake and why. You don't know that. You don't know who made this cake and why. You can tell me all the hows and the what's about this cake, but you can't tell me who, and you can't tell me why. As a matter of fact, our nine-year-old daughter, Jane, baked this cake. And the reason she made this cake is because I asked her to. I said, Jane, make me this cake. I'm going to set this on the communion table. I hope that's not sacrilegious there. Um, <laughs> but this is a little bit like what we do in life. We, we have a lot of questions We want to understand how the world works, what our life is for. 
And there are a lot of questions that we can go to different places and find valid answers. But the trick comes when we try to get all of our questions answered in one of the secondary places. Say, for example, science. Science and the history of the development of science springs from Christian impulses in Tom Holland's sweeping history of the influence of Christianity on on, on the world and particularly in the West talks about the rise of how it was Christian uh, um, explorers and, 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 and scientists, the Jesuits themselves with the thirst for knowledge, develop kind of what we uh, think of today when we think of the sciences. This thirst for knowledge comes from this impulse to understand God's world. So it's a good gift. But science has limits to the number of questions it can answer. In fact, the late Jewish rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was the former chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth, said it this way. He said, science likes to take things apart to show us how they work, but faith puts things together to show us what they mean. Science has a place that can tell us, answer a lot of our questions, particularly our how questions. How does this work? But when we come with questions about But why? And what does it mean? How are we supposed to make sense of my life and your life and society and the world itself? And if we insist on getting all of those questions answered in one place, we'll find ourselves coming up short. And so Christians understand that there are some places, some questions that we have to, absolutely have to go to God and go to his word and go to scripture. Christians have confessed this confession called the Nicene Creed for about 1,700 years. And about 300 years into the history of Christianity, these church leaders from North Africa and East Asia and West Asia and all the different regions where the church was starting to multiply and grow, they said, we better write down the core lines of what constitutes this Christian faith. And that came to be called the Nicene Creed. Maybe you've seen it out on the banner, out in the lobby. Now, maybe you're new to church and new to this whole Jesus-y thing, and you've seen that banner, and you're like, what's that called? The Niceness Creed? Did they run out of words and leave out the ESS or something? No, it's Nicene because it was written down in the city of Nicaea. And the creed says this. It says, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We're in a series that's going to take us several months. The series is called, Who is God? And over the last couple of weeks, we've been exploring who is God, the Father, the first person of the Trinity. In a few more, we've got a few more weeks left of that. And then in March and into all the way up until Easter, we're going to look at who is God, the Son, Jesus. Who's Jesus? And then after that, who is God, the Holy Spirit? And over the last couple of weeks, Jason has walked us through a couple of these phrases in the Creed. Three weeks back, I did one God, and then Jason did the Father, and then last week, the Almighty. And today, we're talking about who is God, the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. If you've got a Bible, you can follow along, or you can look at the screen. That's perfectly fine. Genesis 1 is where we'll start this morning. And I want to say a few things about this. First, Genesis 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then skip down to verse 31, it says, and God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. God saw all that he had made. Not God saw some of what he had made, God saw most of what he had made, and it was pretty good. Notice the language here is total. He saw all, and it was very good. These are strong phrases. 
And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, oftentimes we read the Genesis text, and particularly here in America, we fixated on how, the, the how question. Well, how long did it take God to make the heavens and the earth? And how old are the heavens and the earth? And, and, and how is it that there was evening and morning before there was sun and moon? Dun, dun, dun. And we get tripped up on all of these questions. And it's not that the scripture has nothing to say about that. It's just that we're coming to it with questions that the ancients would not have asked. And we're coming to it with sort of these 18th century, 19th century questions. And we're saying, tell me how the cake was made. And Genesis is like, I'd rather tell you who made it and why. I'd rather tell you who made it and why. And when you look at Genesis against the backdrop of the ancient world, several things stand out. The ancient pagans would not have said, did a God make the heavens and the earth? That was a given. In fact, if you've had classes in college or whatever where you read the Mesopotamian creation myths or the different Akkadian origin stories of the world or Greek myths or maybe even other religious stories of the origins of the world, the question is not, did a God, but which God and why? And what's he like? And against that backdrop, you see what... The, the, story, the writer of Genesis is trying to say to us as he tells this story. The first thing we recognize is that there's only one God. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. There's only one God. In the ancient world, they thought there were many gods. In fact, some of the civilizations around Israel said, the sun is a God, the moon is a God. And Moses is like, mm, actually, our God made your God. And all of a sudden, this poem in Genesis 1 is like, Moses' way of trolling the Babylonians or the Egyptians. Oh, is that your God? That's good. Let me tell you a story. My God made that thing. <laughs> There's a sense in which we're introduced to the single sovereign creator. And not only that, but he did it on purpose. One ancient mythology of the beginning of the world says that the gods were at war with one another. And the, the consequence of their battle was the universe. And you're like, well, that's not a great story. One ancient myth says two gods were at war. One god ripped the guts out of another god and flung it into the sky and said, that's going to be the moon. Wouldn't that be a lovely bedtime story? <laughs> Mommy, how, what's the moon? It's the guts of a god. <laughs> that's, that's. But the god of Genesis is a singular sovereign creator who makes the world on purpose and with pleasure. The God of Genesis is a singular, sovereign creator who makes the world on purpose, and not just on purpose, but with pleasure. In fact, when you read this poem in Genesis 1, you recognize that God can hardly get through a piece of creation without stopping and interrupting himself and standing back and saying, man, that's good. That, that's good. I like it. Okay, let's come back to it tomorrow. Next day, mm, that's good. He likes what he's made. He, he, he doesn't make the world to be his slaves and servants like the other stories of ancient gods who said, there are too many chores to do in the universe. Let's create some human beings to be our servants. That's not how Genesis works. It says, let's create human beings in our image to be our co-rulers. You see how different this story is. I want us this morning to say, to look at, look at think about three things that all of this means for creation. 
If this is true of the creator, that he is the singular sovereign creator who makes the world on purpose and with pleasure, what does this mean for how we are to think about and relate to the created world? I want to say three things about that this morning. The first is this. Let's read Genesis 1. Yeah, the first is this. Creation is good. Creation is good. We've already read Genesis 1.31. I was going to read it again, but we got it. Now, I know when you hear this phrase that creation is good, we struggle with that. Because you're like, sure, on good days. <laughs> I mean, like, it's nice now when the sun is shining and Pikes Peak looks glorious. Every sunrise as the glow starts to come onto the mountains and every sunset as the glow goes behind it. You're like, of course. But it's not so good when it's dangerous and when there are wildfires. So how can you say creation is good? Here's the thing. We have this tendency to jump into the middle of the story and notice the fallenness and the sin and the stain and taint in the world. And we can forget that the story actually began with goodness. The story actually began with goodness. And in some ways, I think Christians are sort of, we're supposed to be like detectives where our job is to look for clues in the world of the goodness of God. I mean, this is how the ancient Israelites were. This is why when you read the Psalms, they're like, your love, O Lord, stretches to the heavens. I mean, this is, think about a civilization, think about a people who lived most of their, their story traveling outside in tents, like how you spent summers in Colorado, you know? Like these are people who are, they're, they're not shut in indoors, they're, live, they're among the elements in the outdoors. And everything they see outdoors reminds them of their covenant God. And they're like, oh, the grass, well, the grass will wither, but the word of God is forever. And they're like, oh, the deer, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. They're like, sheep, the Lord is my shepherd. I mean, they can't contain themselves. They can't even help it. They're like, the mountains, oh, the mountains, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. They can't help themselves. He'll protect me from the sun in the day and the moon at night. The Lord, our God, is a sun and shield. Look at the Psalms and see how often they're referring to creation. They can't help it. They don't see creation as something to be tolerated, but as something that was made good and speaks of God. It's good. It's good. Sometimes, you know, Christians, we, we want to split the world into natural world is bad, spiritual world is good. And so maybe you grew up around this sort of mentality where if you were trying to do something that had to do with the natural world or the created world, you were kind of told, shame on you. you know, like, why, why, are you, why do you enjoy concerts so much? You should enjoy praying more. Or what's this about enjoying a meal with friends and neighbors? I see you missed the church function on Wednesday night. Midweek prayer. I see you had neighbors instead. How was that meal? And we kind of have this hierarchy of goodness. And I want to say to you that this is God's world. It's God's good world. And these are things that are given to us to be able to say, oh, actually, God's here. God's in the midst of this. But you know what it also means? It means something about your life and my life. Now, I'm going to say a phrase that you might trip over. The phrase is simply this, you are good. Now, I don't mean that you're not a sinner. I don't mean that there's not the fallenness in our nature. 
I don't mean that there isn't brokenness in the story. There most certainly is. But I sometimes wonder if we fixate so much on what theologians have called original sin that we actually miss that Genesis 1 gives us an original blessing. There's an original blessedness to you and to me. Ken, I'm going to need you to just keep that up, man. That's just awesome, bro. But he's going to need some help, right? Yeah. So, so hear me. I'm not saying like you're good, you're capable of saving yourself. No, 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 no. We needed saving, and we're going to get to that this morning. But when I say you are good, I mean I want you to hear how the Father saw you before the foundations of the world. The problem is we don't want to come to God because we imagine that we're going to get the face of an exasperated father that's like, I told you. But Genesis says when he created male and female, it says he blessed them. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. It got translated in Greek by the time of Jesus. And that Greek word for he blessed them is that word eulageo from which we get our word eulogy. Now think of this, we say a eulogy at the end of a person's life, after they've lived, and we say, that was a pretty good life. They were a great woman, they were a great man. God said a eulogy over you before the foundations of the world, at the very beginning of it all, God looked out over all the the future history of of the human race, and he said, I'm going to bless them, I'm going to speak well of them, I'm going to say, these are my image bearers. This is how I start the story. There's no motivation to return to God if we believe that all he's going to do is tell us how lousy we are. But the conviction of sin flows from the blessing of the Father. The Father who says, I know how I made you and this ain't it. I know what I made you to be and when you chase these other things, that ain't it. So come home because there's an original blessing over you. Now I want you to pause this morning. I want you to pause and turn to the person next to you. If you haven't met them yet, it's a good time to meet them. I'm going to have you do this three times today. And I want you to just look them in the eye. And, and if it's a woman, say, you're a good woman. If it's a man, say, you're a good man. And I want you to speak the same blessing that the Father said over the world in the beginning. Go ahead. Say, you're a good man or you're a good woman. <laughs> yes. I know. Some of y'all's marriages are getting healed right now. <laughs> Glory. <laughs> uh-huh. James 1 verse 17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good, every perfect gift is from the Father. The second thing I want to say about creation is that creation is a gift. It's a gift to us. We are gifts to one another. And the world is a gift from a generous father to us. That means it's meant to be enjoyed. Gifts are meant to be enjoyed. Does anyone know what this is? It's French press. Yeah, you're so smart. I was not that smart at 23. When Holly and I got married, uh, someone, one of our dear friends, gave us a French press. Except that at 23 and 22, we didn't know what this was. We didn't register for this. And if you got married and you're like, gifts show up, you're like, we didn't register for that. Why why did they do that? Like we took the time to walk through Target and go beep, 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 beep. Although these days probably it's all like online or whatever, right? 
I don't know. I'm old. But we're like, we, we didn't register. Well, who gave us it? What is this? And then we open it. It's like, this is from like some of our closest friends. Why? Why do they do this? Don't they know us? And literally, like, like this thing sat in the kitchen, one of our cabinets for years. And we're like, should we throw it away? We can't throw it away because it was a gift. You know. And we moved. Like, we've lived in, in the springs for 22 years, but we've moved a few times. Every time we moved, we put it in a box. Should we get rid of it? No, let's, let's, let's take it with us. Goes in a box. Goes to the new house. Comes out of the box. Where should we put this? I'll just put it up in the high shelf on the cabinet. It's up in the cabinet. We're moving. We have no idea. What do we do with this thing? And then a few years ago, we're like starting to get a little more sophisticated, you know. <laughs> like, oh, let's try this thing out. Boil some water, grind up some coffee beans, let it steep, wait five minutes, push it down. Now, now, this is about how we make coffee every day. It's with the French press. See, <laughs> we can be taught. They can, it, it can happen. But the point is that gifts are meant to be enjoyed, not to be put on the shelf. So if you find yourself saying, well, hey, we're, we're going to go skiing or we're going to go do this. We're gonna, it, you, you don't have to, to, to feel the sense of like, I don't know, is that unholy? You're like, was it a gift that your father gave to you? Then enjoy it. Then enjoy it. Was it a gift? Is friendship a gift of the Father? Yes, it is. Our relationships a gift from the Father. Absolutely. Is watching a football game with friends today a gift? Yes. Although there's sadness to it. <laughs> but if creation is a gift, it also means that your life is a gift. Your life is a gift. This is why Christians from the earliest moments were picking up babies who had been discarded by the Romans on trash heaps in, in alleys throughout the cities. Because Christians said, whoa, 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 this is not to be discarded. This is a gift. This is why Christians have a long history. Christians used to use church funds to pay the price to free slaves. Do you know this? St. Augustine in North Africa would raise money in the church and say, how many more slaves can we free with church money? I know some of all that we think about is what churches in the American South said, but you need to know the church's story is actually a lot older than America. And if we learn from church history, we'll actually recognize that Christians have always valued every life as sacred from the womb all the way to the tomb. And that's the life of the person on the edges. That's the life of the person that nobody else might have regard for. But Christians always are the ones that stand up and say, hang on, if God is the maker of heaven and earth, then life is a gift. During the pandemic, one of the unfortunate things about our work switching to be mostly online or hybrid, or many of us, many of you have talked to some of you already this morning, many of you are not going back to sort of traditional office spaces and all of that. And there's a lot of freedom in that, a lot of good that comes from that. But I wonder sometimes when, when, when our work sort of gets funneled through digital spaces, do human beings get reduced to productivity machines? And so all of a sudden, my value is how m many of the to-do list items I've clicked through, how many emails I've responded to. And there you lose a bit of the humanness of catching one another in the hallway and saying, ah, how are you doing? What happened to the kids? And who's graduating this summer? Now we all gather in that Zoom space. And the only thing we say before the meeting starts is, um, Sally, you're on mute right now. Unmute yourself, please. Or I'm going to share my screen. Wait. 
Is it shared yet? Anyway. And we get kind of reduced. We get kind of reduced to these productivity machines. And I think there's a certain rebellion we need to have against that flow. A certain rebellion, a refusal to treat people as the sum total of their sales quota last quarter. And refuse to treat people as someone who made their targets or didn't make their targets. Some of you during the pandemic, your income went down and you've wondered, gosh, am I still valuable to my household? You are not what you make. You are not what you earn. You are not what you produce. You are a gift from a good father. So take a minute or a few seconds, turn to the person next to you and just say to them, you are a gift. Your life is a gift. <laughs> like you, like the gift is you. Now, if you're hoping this gets you out of Valentine's Day flowers and chocolates, I can't guarantee that. <laughs> cannot guarantee that. The third and final thing I want us to think about this morning is that creation glorifies God. It's not just good and it's not just a gift. It was made to glorify God. Psalm 19, we we already sang some of these lines in the worship songs this morning, but Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. And it's almost like the psalmist is like, I know, You don't like when I get poetic like this. So let me just say, they have no speech. Okay, for all you literalists out there, they use no words. No sound is heard from them, verse 4. And yet, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words, to the ends of the world. Creation was made not to be an end in itself, but to be a witness to who God is. To testify about who God is. In fact, we might say it this way, the goodness of creation reveals the very goodness of God. And the gift of creation reveals the very generosity of God. The sun could have made its revolutions, the earth could turn around, all that stuff could have happened without it being so beautiful. Sunsets didn't have to be beautiful. Babies didn't have to be cute. Birds didn't have to sing. Beauty is always surplus. Those of you that are the artists in the room, and I think to some degree, because we're made in the image of God, we're all joined in this work of creativity. But some of you vocationally, you, you're the, the writers or the painters or the poets, and you're like, I know, I spend a lot of hours and I produce like this one thing. I talked to a guy the other day who said he's been working on this project for years and will be years more before it's done. And if we reduce life to efficiency and productivity, we'll lose beauty. Because not only is beauty surplus, but beauty involves a lot of excess and waste. You're like, what what, what do you you, you mean? You took five hours to write that, you know, whatever, that one line. (laughs) I, I don't know. Just had to. It just takes time. But what it reveals is the generosity of God. But here's what happens. We mess things up. We make the mistake so easily of 
taking the created world. Remember, the creed says things that are unseen and unseen. So we're not just talking about the seen things like the mountains and the rivers, but the unseen stuff of friendship and joy and laughter. Sometimes we take those very things, wisdom, knowledge, part of the created order, and we think that they are an end in themselves. Listen to what happens in the book of Acts here, Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas are given a fantastic sermon, and the people are like, these are the gods. I mean, just imagine, what kind of a sermon? How good was that sermon, you know? Like people come up, they walk, they walk off, they're done. Like, these are gods, you know. And Paul rebukes them. Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things, these gods that you think that we are, to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Paul starts referencing creation. He starts referencing God as the maker And then he says, in the past, he let all nations go their own way. If you're wondering, well, how did people come to all these wrong conclusions about God and about who made the world? Paul's like, well, God had a little bit of, you know, sort of let nations go their own way. But he says, yet he has not left himself without testimony. God put breadcrumbs along the way. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Listen to what Paul is saying. He's referencing both things that are seen and unseen. Rain and then joy. And all of it, he says, comes from God. But imagine looking at breadcrumbs and thinking that's the feast. Imagine picking up the breadcrumbs and saying, this is awesome. This is amazing. And and, and God's like, "Uh, keep going. That's where the feast is. Creation was made to be a sign, a signpost pointing to the real thing. But how foolish is it to stop in front of the sign and think you've arrived? None of us on, the, on I-70 making our way up to the ski slopes, none of us finds a sign that says Breckenridge Ski Area, three miles and salt. There it is. Pull the car over off the shoulder. Get your boots on. Get the skis on. Here we go. You're like, this is kind of odd, but the sign says. Nobody goes to a beach vacation and finds a little sign that says beach trail, 100 yards. And you got your chair and your sunscreen. You're like, okay, let's just pop down right here by the sign, the sign, beach. (laughs) That ain't it, man. That's just the sign. But we do this all the time. We come into a good friendship And we're like, oh, this is my world, is this friendship. That's good. It's it's, It's a good gift meant to make you glorify God. Don't stop at the sign. Don't stop at the sign. In fact, when we take good things and treat them like ultimate things, we ruin everything. When we take good things... And treat them like ultimate things. We ruin everything. In fact, this is why we gather as the church. I'm trying to help you live in that tension of we gather and then we're sent back out into the world. And what we, what we do and enjoy with our friends and neighbors and people at work and all of that stuff. Those are all the, the ways of being a witness to God in the world. And yet there is something about gathering as the church. Because when we gather as a church, we're saying, all week long, I've been doing my detective work in the world, trying to pick up little clues of God's goodness and God's generosity and God's gift. But I got to go with the people of God 
and glorify the maker of heaven and earth. I got to come together. That's why the psalmist said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of God. But when we take good things and treat them like ultimate things, we ruin everything. This is the story of the fall. This is the story of a world that is in bondage. Very quickly, Paul said it this way in Romans 8. He said, creation was subjected to frustration. Some days it's beautiful and you see its beauty and other days you're like, oh, this is the earth groaning right now. That's why there's hurricanes. That's what this, it's, it's the earth itself groaning saying, no, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory, the glory of the children of God. And so the final piece of this, if we say that creation was made for God's glory, guess what it means about you? It means you were made for God's glory. You were made for God's glory. The trouble with trying to start with us is we make ourselves the center of the story and then try to figure out life. But this whole series is about starting with God. Who is God? And then as a result, you find yourself in that story. You're not irrelevant. But the story doesn't begin with you. It begins with God. And actually, that's where the good news is. You were made for God's glory. So one last time, turn to the person next to you and say, you were made for God's glory. If the worship team would come this morning, start making their way up here. I know that this is where, <laughs> this is where it starts to get a little sticky. Because you say, well, Glenn, all this, you know, so far so good. But my life feels pretty broken. Like, how can my life actually be a good gift How can my life actually be for the glory of God? What about the divorce? What about the failure? What about the mistakes I've made? He's saying, does God sort of gloss over that? I mean, what am I supposed to do with all that? The best part about how the creed names God is it doesn't say he's the one who made the heavens and the earth. It says he's the maker of heaven and earth. Think about this for a moment. It doesn't say the one who made as if he did his creating work and we're like, God, could you create something? And he says, no, that's like so... So Genesis 1, man. I'm not doing that anymore. It says he's the maker of heaven and earth. And this is why even in the Old Testament, the psalmist prays in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, new creation has come. New creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. When we talk about God, the creator, the maker of heaven and earth, 
Later the creed will say that through Jesus all things were made. And then it'll say, and the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life. All present tense. It's reminding us that if you're in need of new creation, I've got good news. This is who God is. This is not what God once did. This is who God is. So maybe you find yourself here today and you're like, I, I don't feel like my life has been a gift to people, to be honest. Don't feel like it's very good. Don't feel like it's worthy of being offered up for God's glory. I want to invite you this morning to surrender your life again to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. And to say, Creator, make me a new creation. Creator, create in me a clean heart. Some of you, maybe you've never been around church and you thought that the message that Christians had was try harder, do better, God is good, and he's not very happy with you. And I want you to hear this morning that the message of the gospel is that God made you. He delights in you. He weeps at the turns you've taken away from him. And he has the power to make you new creation today. That's the good news. And others of you today, you're, you're like, well, I, this is great. I, I, I love Jesus. I'm following Jesus. It's wonderful. Paul said, our outer being is perishing, but our inner being can be renewed. All of us this Sunday morning can say, all right, maker of heaven and earth, make my heart new again today. So would you stand with me?